Proctor here with a few announcements before we get into this episode. First, I am happy to announce that this episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. If you're looking for high-quality videos on Clojure, PurelyFunctional.tv has you covered. Eric Norman walks you through topics including an intro to Clojure, to more in-depth topics such as Core.async, and includes lots of exercises along the way. The videos are also available as downloads, allowing you to watch offline at your convenience, and previews of the videos are available on the site. To get your copies of the videos, go to http colon purelyfunctional.tv slash geekery and use coupon code geek to get a 25% discount on everything. And make sure to thank Eric Normand and Purely Functional TV for being a sponsor. Second, I would like to let everyone know about the Erlang User Conference in Stockholm, Sweden, taking place on the 11th through 12th of June. The largest Erlang event in Europe will feature talks about Erlang and OTP and Elixir innovations, open source applications, tools, products, and case studies. This year brings a good mix of talks from large companies using Erlang in production, but also from startups and researchers. To find out more information and to register, visit http colon www.erlang-factory.com slash euc2015. And make sure to get a 10% discount on the two days of conference when using the code fngeekery10. The code will work on both the early bird rates until May 15th, and on the standard rate after that. Lastly, I will be presenting an introduction to Erlang Workshop at LambdaConf 2015. LambdaConf will be taking place on the 22nd through 24th of May in Boulder, Colorado. LambdaConf has also graciously offered listeners 10% off registration when you use the code lambdaconf-functional-geekery. I look forward to meeting you there. Welcome to the 21st episode of Functional Geekery. I am your host, Proctor, and this week with us we have Andrea McNorsey. Andrea, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Hello. Um, so, yeah, sure. At the moment, I develop games professionally. Like, that's my full-time job. And I'm also the organizer for a local user group called Functional Cats. I also organize game jams. But mostly, I just love writing code. Before the call, you mentioned you got into functional programming through Haskell. Can you expand on that a little more for everyone listening? Sure. I got very interested because I kept hearing oh, functional is great because better code, more terse, and monads, and what are those things? And basically, I thought, okay, if I'm going to learn, I should probably learn with the purest of languages. And at the time, that seemed to be Haskell. So I started to learn, and I did my exercises. You know, we all do the, oh, you know, try immutability this and pure that. But the thing is, very soon I got to the point where I did my getting started, hello words and whatever, and I felt like I couldn't really get the language into my day-to-day. And so I started talking to all people. One of those people was Bill Trelford, who is a well-known F-sharp, and he was like, should try a shop. I can't do a British accent, but uh, he's very funny. And he kept telling me that I should try a sharp until I went and actually tried a sharp. And it was just really, really, really good. And actually, a lot of what I had learned on Haskell, which actually is like, admittedly, probably not that much, I could get into what I was trying to do with F sharp. So I didn't feel like completely like a duck out of the water. With F-Sharp, it meant because I developed my game on C-Sharp, it meant it was already in the ecosystem I needed it, so it meant I could start doing things with it. So that was really how it went from Haskell, static typing, probably a big thing there when it came to F-Sharp, 
understanding type systems and just a lot of knowledge in per little space of time. About how long ago was that? Probably, that would be maybe a year and a half, two years ago now. I started Functional Cuts just after what I said, oh, okay, I really need to get this going. And we started on January last year, so January 2014, but I started on my own before. So, and I remember Code Mesh 2013 being like a big eye opener for me, going like, okay, I really need to understand what's going on in this world because it's just too amazing to miss out on. Part of the part that got you interested was the supposed big scary words that came out of Haskell, of like the functor and applicative and monads. And those words were part of what got you hooked? Is that what I... Not really. What I liked is that I could read Haskell, that, you know, you saw talks, I, I would watch talks and see, okay, I can see what they're doing, but I can't do that in my language in that very succinct way. And I want to understand how is that possible. So actually, it was the simplicity or the readability, just beauty of the code that really got me hooked. The language about it, like moon and whatever, was just like, okay, it's just something I don't know, and I need to learn. And I knew it came from maths. So it wasn't scary. It was more parallel to the fact that I want to learn how you get that really nice, beautiful code. And how can I write that instead of try catches with exceptions and God knows what else, abominations. And part of the reason I was asking for the time frame is you had a presentation at the last Code Mesh where you were walking through F Sharp and some of the differences of picking up F Sharp and integrating it into your work and exposing the ideas of functional programming to others that may not have been with it. And that seems like a pretty good turnaround for someone who's started recently and then has essentially full on adopted the use and turned around and started evangelizing to others why you should be looking at this as well. Yeah, I think there is no better way to learn than try to teach something. And when you start trying, people kind of, I think someone invited me to give a talk and I was like, I don't think I'm ready for that. And that's generally the sign that you should totally talk about it because if you have to go and stand up in front of, you know, even if three people and explain something you're going to try to learn and, and have a, a somewhat cohesive vocabulary about what you're trying to say, right? Or at least get the ideas right in your head. So with all the fear that could come out of going out and talking about it, I thought the fact that I've done it and it's such a short time, it proves that what I'm talking about is actually right. I'm not magical and I'm not a genius. I'd love to be, I know, but it is possible and it's quite simple. You just need to forget, oh, well... <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. And that's not to beat up a little, really. It's just that you need to think in a slightly different way. And it's more, I think the barriers to learning functional programming are more mental barriers that you put yourself as in, it could be scary, that actually the things that you need to do and how you need to think about them. And now I really just want to keep learning different paradigms and languages. I think the first time I got really curious about functional at all is with seven languages in seven weeks. You've got I.O. with prototypical kind of language. You had Haskell there. You had Prolog. That really opened my eyes to what our languages could actually do. And that was even before I even started seriously or, or somewhat seriously, you know, going like, okay, I really need to learn this. So I hope that answered your question. That did. And the fact that you were able to do that and turn around does seem like a success story that we want to know about and encourage. Absolutely. Because it's like, as you said, it took me a year 
before I went and gave my first presentation to feel comfortable talking about this. Yeah, it's a good sign. And it speaks well of the language and of the paradigm. I used to hear, like, when f was younger, as in .NET, you keep hearing things, but you don't necessarily go and look for them. It's like, oh, f it's for mathematicians and very smart people, and it's scary. And it's not really. It was just marketed wrong. I think it was very unfortunate, actually, that they've done it that way. But um, thankfully now, I think we've lost that baggage. I hope so. I don't know. I have a biased perception now because I'm part of the community. And part of that is your code mess presentation was, was it how you started or was just one way that you integrated was starting to use things like fake and integrate the F sharp? Absolutely. Actually, <laughs> the first thing I've done that we used in production was tests. There is a brilliant post by Scott Lashen called something like 26 effective ways to introduce F sharp into your organization. It's either that or very close. I'll add the link to your notes, but basically it had like, Use the REPL and write tests. There is all these test types that you can do. It was really obvious, but the fact that that post exists and you can point to that post and go like, okay, go there. And if you're in C-sharp shop, you can just sneakily squeeze in some F-sharp goodness and get started. For me, the first thing I did and that I really love is FS check. And uh, kudos to Kurt for, he's the one that is the main maintainer, I think, of the project. He's done a brilliant job for a long time at creating and maintaining the project. The way it works is that you can use FSCheck to generate parts of your test. It integrates really well with existing unit testing frameworks, such as NUnit and XUnit. So that's the first thing I did. But besides what I did, there is some other testing frameworks that are more functional, like FSUnit or there is another one that I don't really use, forgot the name, but there is a lots of options when it comes to testing and trying to test using a more functional approach. Once I've done that, I moved on to using fake. That's like F sharp make. Again, a really mature project with like over three and a half or four years of the project actually existing and being used in production, which it's easier to rely on, on something like that for your build. If it was a very young project, you would be slightly concerned that everything would fail eventually or something. And fake, from the .NET point of view, I think is the best build system there is out there because you have something like Pisaki or C-sharp-based ones or even MS-build, and they are very, very painful to use because generally you don't have the type system helping you. So fake gives you a really nice DSL on top of MS Build or if you're building on Mono. And you have the support of the type system. But also when something is missing, you can just write some code and it's code that compiles that it's type safe. And that really adds a lot because generally when you're testing builds, the feedback loops are kind of long, particularly for us. So you want to try to not have to test the whole build all the time. You can also do stuff like targets and takes parts out of your build and put them on, whatever. So that's a beautiful tool. And to circle back around, you mentioned FS check. Yes. That is a property slash generative testing framework, correct? Yes. We've talked about property testing in previous episodes, but for anybody who's unfamiliar with it, do you want to give a rundown of how it works and specifically how it works in FS check? Sure. 
The idea of it is that you have a system that is under test and you define a property. It could be something as simple as when you add x and x, that will be equal to two x's. So that is a property. That is an invariant of your system that shouldn't change. So that's the idea of a property. And the canonical example for property testing is inverse of the inverse of a list is the original list. So if you imagine that in code, there will be list.inf or whatever it is, whatever language you're doing. So list inverse, list inverse of the list equals your original list. The good thing about this way of thinking about your system and your test is that you're thinking about exactly what it should do, as opposed to when you're doing unit testing or integration testing, you're generally focusing on one scenario, either the happy or the sad path. So you have that slightly more, I'll call it, good view in that you think about what your system should do rather than how it behaves in a particular case. That's what property testing is. When it comes to FS check, all you're trying to do is you define a function and whatever you want generated, you pass it as a parameter and you can then define your property that needs to be asserted as an equality or a Boolean at the end. Or you can do a bunch of things. You can add certain strains or whatever, but the simplest example basically is you have a function, parameter, whatever you assert in the last line of that function is what is going to be verified. I hope that gives some... I'm trying to think how to describe it so as to not focus too much on the language so that people from our languages can understand. But I don't know if I'm just actually making it worse by explaining that word. Have you looked at other property-based testing systems? Based off your little looking around Haskell, have you seen like the Haskell quick check at all? Yeah, it's funny because I looked at the Erlang quick check, the cubic one from John Hughes. I looked at Closure check. I even looked at JavaScript check. <laughs> well, I didn't check. Quick check, which is really funny to not have done that. I'm embarrassed by that. But no, I didn't. Have you? Have you used it? No, I haven't. That's one of the reasons I was getting at it, because I've seen a little bit of the Erlang one, but I've been told that the Haskell quick check has the generators built in because Haskell is a statically typed language that it can do a lot of that generation for you based off the types. So I was wondering, is that something that FS check gives you? Absolutely. Yes, yes. You have by default the generators for all the types that are there, but also say you have your custom types, you can write your own generators. The shrinkers are also pretty good. I don't know, there's a lot built in on FS check. And actually, we use it in a slightly naive way. I haven't gone too far on the uses of FS check, but there is so much to explore when it comes to shrinkers in particular. I'm like, oh, okay, this is kind of like magic. I'm kind of surprised about the fact that they are so used in non-static type languages. Because I'm so used to thinking in types that I just can't imagine thinking about testing without types. I think I need to do some of that once I'm done with this game. Try to explore that because it sounds more difficult than it should be. My understanding from my brief look at it and talking with past guests is that for things like Erlang and Clojure, that you're writing more of the generators, but the properties still hold. So as you said, reversing a reversed list is the same as the list still would hold, in it, whether it's a static or dynamic language, but how you generate that list would be something that you would have to define yourself. They aren't as good at generating your types because the types can be more dynamic. Cool. With playing with FS Check, is there anything that you've noticed 
from your time in FS Check compared to what you've played with in some of the other property testing frameworks? That is novel to FS Check, at least because of the features that F Sharp gives you. No, well, I think that because it's an unfair comparison because it it is uh, comparing dynamic languages with static languages, so it wouldn't be fair. If there's all this stuff that I found kind of slightly oh okay, I have to worry about that in the Erlang one when I did that workshop. But in F Sharp, you just get types. There might be features there that are definitely not in Haskell and in Haskell Quick Check, and I just don't know because I haven't used it. So I'm afraid I don't know enough to answer your question. And I realized it was kind of an unfair comparison, but it was just more outlining those differences between it, even if it is an unfair comparison. So you've integrated F-Sharp into your development. Mm -hmm. How big is the group that you're in? Is this just you've managed to integrate it and you're one person, or you've managed to integrate it across a team and you've managed to find and garner adoption across the team? The reason I ask is more that some people are like, well, that's fine, but is she really only working on this code by herself and she doesn't have to worry about gaining adoption elsewhere? Totally. Well, we're making a game and our team is basically, at the moment, is two developers and two designer artists. And we have a few floating people that sometimes they're on and sometimes they're off. So as to adoption, it's not so hard to convince one person. More so when you're saying, listen, if you have any problems, I'm always here. If that code is a pain for some reason, I will fix it for you always. So it's easier for me to, more being one of the founders of the company, I can have some sort of say on what technologies we use. But at the same time, it's like, okay, it's easier to say, I'll go and do this cool thing that I wanted to do. But also when you're the founder of business, you know that you have to make good decisions that won't affect your cash flow more as a game company. So choosing to go with the build system that I really thought would just save me time because otherwise I have to write PowerShell, which is not very nice, particularly when you compare PowerShell with F-Sharp. I knew that that was a sound technical and money decision. And I think anybody in my same situation, even if you have a team of one or 200, would probably make the same decision. You are slightly more cautious when you're the owner. That's kind of what I'm trying to say. Okay, not so many people in our team. But at the same time, I need to make decisions that won't delay me and my team. So I think trying to drive adoption on a group of people would be harder. And I'd love to work with bigger team of developers in F-Sharp or in any other functional language, actually. And because you do games, and I saw a little bit of your game snippet in your code mesh talk that I watched online, how have you found the fit of functional programming in the stuff that you do as part of the game work versus just the ancillary tools around the game work? Because it looked like you actually had some snippets of code there that were all F-sharp that was running your game. When we started, we did some methods check, then I did some fake. But finally, I integrated F-sharp into our scripting system. So that means that we can write code that affects the runtime of the game in F-sharp. And the integration was really simple. So that means F-sharp is running a good few scripts in the game. And the reason for using it is simply easier and it's shorter to write. And even without a very smart wrapper or anything, it was just, okay, I can compile F-sharp code and it looks a little bit OO-ish and imperative, but I can still use it. So I get some of the benefits. But actually now I'm working on making that a little bit better. So basically writing F-sharp code would be just maybe a third or a quarter lines of code 
that I have to write to do the same that I would have to do in C sharp. And when you start thinking about the time you save, just even doing that is you can't say no to that. It's impossible as a rational person to go, you know what? I'm gonna write more code that actually looks slightly more complicated and harder to follow because that seems like a good idea. Nobody ever. And based off my understanding, because I talked to Rick Meinrich as a previous thing, he also reiterated the C sharp to F sharp integration is nice and smooth and that they've really nailed that story, correct? Yes, absolutely. Basically, if you're consuming C sharp from F sharp, it just works. I've been using it now for like, what, a year, year and a half, and I didn't ever have a problem. Like at the start, I needed to understand, and because we're shipping F sharp with our editor, and I was like, okay, why is this here? But in reality, there was no really any questions about it. You can just go and use it, which is, I don't know who did that, but thank you, whoever you are. But it's something people should be able to help sell management with as well as there are certain places where this would make sense to be written in F-sharp and we don't have to worry about the integration thing. It integrates as easily with C-sharp as VB.net does if I'm a .net developer who's been interested in functional programming and F-sharp. Absolutely. And nearly, I would say, better. Again, bias is everywhere. I think that at this point, the only reason why people... Don't use, there are no technical reasons for you to not use F-sharp from in your C-sharp shop if you're doing something that makes more sense in writing in F-sharp. You really have no excuse. The only limiting reasons are all about people, about subjective perception, and or maybe just not wanting to learn. And maybe that's a little bit too harsh, but also I think there's a lot of just, that's not the way we've done it in the past, so we'll stay and do entity framework forever or whatever. I think people, if they want to get it, they want to use it, they just can And you've also done a few blog posts on migrating C-sharp code to F-sharp. And from reading those posts, it doesn't actually look like it's a very big and overly burdensome migration either, right? Yeah, it was simple. It was like, first you copy your code and you paste. Then you remove the squiggly lines. Then you remove the semicolons. Probably we are very close to compiling. Okay, what's next? And you can nearly start that way. I actually did start that way. This was the C-sharp code. Let's put it here. Clean it up. The knowledge you will have about .NET totally comes with you. And if you're new to F-sharp, the one thing I always recommend is go write some F-sharp, compile it, then grab the assembly, decompile it with any of the decompilers that are out there, and just look at the code it generates. You can see the decompile I have. And if you didn't understand what's going on with the F-sharp magic, you just know exactly what is happening with the decompile code. And at some point, you won't need to do that anymore. And you can be just writing F-sharp. So, absolutely easy. And just digging further into F-sharp is, I believe you mentioned it on the Mostly Erling podcast I might have heard you elsewhere, was that F-sharp as well has a very good, strong support for the Mono platform, correct? Yes, there's a good few people that I know using F-Sharp exclusively on Macs. And I know that there is uh, packages for many of the most popular Linux distros. And also, I know if people on Functional Geekery audience know, but F-Sharp is an open source language. And it's been open source for a long, long time now. Over a year and a half, maybe two, maybe more even. I think September, not the September, not the previous one. 2012, maybe, I don't know. 
Since then, it's received loads of pull requests and support from the community. And that's actually what made it available everywhere. There's Emacs findings, there's BIM findings, there's Prime repo support. The language is very nice, but also it's everywhere, wherever you want to run it. I actually think someone is running it on Raspberry Pi. I'm hoping I can find a blog post about it, but I'm pretty sure someone did run it on that, which is kind of cool. And and I've heard it's not only mono, and I think I heard somewhere else that people have actually taken some of Xamarin's cross-platform stuff for building phone apps, such as iOS apps and Android apps, and have been able to write some of their apps there in F-Sharp as well. Yeah, yeah. Rachel Reese is well known for speaking about this, and Samarin supports this, and this is maybe premier news, but we might be porting our game to our platform that needs some of that mono Samarin goodness. So I might not know about this in the not-so-distant future, but the F-Sharp support for mono runtime, it's real. So yeah, I don't remember any concrete cases of like Amazon went and did this in F-Sharp. I don't really know, but I know that people have deployed F-Sharp in their internal enterprises as support apps and whatnot. So it sounds like if you're on a Mac or Linux and you are interested in F-Sharp, there should be nothing really standing in your way to be able to go out and try it, where you would say, well, first I have to get a Windows virtual machine up with Windows installed and then go download everything. You should be able to have everything pretty much at your fingertips already, even if you aren't on the Windows environment, right? Totally, yes, you can do that. Probably the best way that I would think is getting Samarin Studio because then you will get a lot of the intelligence, which in a, you know, in a static type language, it really helps to get type information at your fingertips. So get Samarin Studio and then go off and have fun in F-Sharp. Otherwise, if you want the low friction way, Sublime is your friend. It's tiny Sublime REPL and you can just start typing. I think you can also go to tryfsharp.org and try F-Sharp in your browser, which is nice. And if you're getting started with F-Sharp, there's F-Sharp Homes, and that's a nice way to start. Also, if you're a Haskell person, you might want to know that F-Sharp, the type system is Heinle Miller. So if the type inference you got in Haskell, it's not just as powerful as Haskell, but it's close enough that you might feel at home. So... And my understanding is it is a pretty much the .NET's version of an ML language, which is why it's very close to Haskell, right? I know that the teams working, the team working on F-Sharp, they were based out in Cambridge, and they were like literally a few doors down from the Haskell team, so they would have chats often about language design. This is more, I heard, the legend of how this language was designed rather than concrete data, but I like to think that that actually happened often. There's a lot of inspiration in F-Sharp from Haskell, and and I think that's a good thing. So how much have you circled back to Haskell after your time in F-Sharp? Since you said Haskell is kind of what got you intrigued first, have you been able to circle back to Haskell a little bit more? Well, I got lucky that I have a friend of mine on Twitter that we meet every week or so, and we do Haskell for a few hours. It's actually for an hour each week, so enough to do an hour a week. And I wrote this little website that parses Markdown on Haskell, and now we're following Elise Ward's book on game programming in Haskell. So we're slowly following that. So not only doing Haskell, but games in Haskell. It's uh, very, very cool. Um, and kudos to Elise uh, for her work on that book. It's very fun to be able to play in a pure language. 
it's harder, but it's also kind of fun because you learn. So circling back slowly, but you know, surely, I kind of take it as fast as I can, but at the same time, trying to keep at it. What have you found coming back to Haskell the second time after dealing with F-Sharp? Have you noticed that F-Sharp just gave you the good introduction to the concepts, or F-Sharp being an ML language is relatively close to Haskell, so you were able to get a lot of the stronger concepts and deeper concepts of Haskell? You've looking at Haskell before, you jumped to F-Sharp. It's funny, because there's some parts that kind of get confusing, because you're like, wait a minute, this is supposed to be hip- Oh, no, no, that's a sharp. Oh, okay, okay. So there are some differences, but it definitely helped. If you went to Haskell first and then it found it hard, I think going to a sharp kind of gets you going. And then you can jump to Haskell again. It definitely helped. What is similar is how you think certain things. So how you think about types, perhaps, is the main thing that I wasn't used to doing. I remember kind of doing some F-sharp a few hours before I did some Haskell. And I remember thinking back to how I did it in F-sharp so I can do it in Haskell and back and forth. So we kind of feed each other. Or I think I learn more from both at the same time, which is, and sometimes it's confusing as hell, but most times I think you get a lot more out of, more, more bang for your buck in terms of what you learn and how fast you learn And I've been to one of the functional user groups, at least in my area, and there was a presentation on F-sharp slash ML, and it was all all F-sharp stuff, but it seemed to be a difference from my background of C-sharp a number of years back, where the type system there is a different type, because you start thinking in things of like, I think it's the union types, is that the, it's the union and is it additive types? Is this an F-sharp, yeah? Yes, right? Yeah, Yeah, you have discriminated unions. And then, I don't know what, I can't remember what to call them in Haskell right now. But yeah, in F-sharp and ML, they're pretty similar. I think there's some differences, but I didn't do ML, so I don't really know what exactly are the differences. But you do have those types, and they are beautiful. And you can add tuples to the discriminated unions, so you can have something like a type that is a person, and then that person is also, I don't know, a magician. And the magician has some data, like uh, maybe artifacts of magicness, and then another one is an accountant. But they're all persons. That, that's super cool. And that's one of the things I was thinking about when I saw that presentation. That seems like it could be one of the big hurdles in thinking of your standard object types versus, and where you're like, okay, well, these are all subclasses, but there could be or could not be more. Whereas in Sharp, according to the presenter, ML, because he's like, you can take any of these examples from this and run it for like the OCaml book. But it was like, as you said, the person is a magician and it has these fields and the person is an accountant and they have these other sets of fields. But unlike the object orientedness of C Sharp and other .NET languages, you don't have to have like even any common sets of fields and attributes. They can all be distinct because they're mapped by that name, right? Yeah. The things like in C-sharp, you would probably do something like, you know, a better way to code it would be to define an interface. But then in the interface, you don't have enough information. You just have a bunch of actions that you mandatorily have to define. So if you're a person, you definitely eat. What if you're on an intravenous, you know, like on an IV? Maybe you don't eat anymore. Or maybe, you know, it's like there's all these scenarios. So you're supposed to be able to extend, you know, your open-close principle. But in reality, not really. So the type system gets in your way. 
I think the hardest thing to explain to a C-sharp developer about F-sharp is how much more you get out of the type system. And it's because it's like sushi, you know? If you've never ate sushi and you try to explain to someone, hey, you know what, you're going to eat raw fish and you're going to like it. They go like, sure, <laughs> you're, you're crazy. But once you start getting the benefits of the type system telling you, no, this is not coherent or this person discriminated union, you can't extend it. But that's a good thing. You know, sometimes some limitations are actually really good for making you better and making your code better. And part of the power of those discriminated unions is pattern matching, right? F-sharp has pattern matching in it? Indeed, yes. Yes, yes. It's got pattern matching and more so, it's got active patterns that you can use in pattern matching. I don't know if I know that term. I may have seen it in that presentation, but for anybody else who's unfamiliar with it, what is the active patterns difference than pattern matching? I think it's just basically be able to give a name to an expression and match on that. So what that means is that you can do complex pattern matching, but because you have that logic, you can separate the logic out into functions. So you can clearly understand that function and give it a name. And it could be like complex logic, but just because you have a name that makes sense in your either business scenario or your application. So not only you can do like match three with three and or some R number, you know, or it's bigger than. So that would be what I consider simple pattern matching. But you can also do this kind of when you're holding these keys all at the same time and also you waited this long, then you can use active patterns. It's a very powerful construct. And the fact that you can combine them also is amazing. So I'm more familiar with the pattern matching that's in Erlang than the F sharp style. So would you say the Erlang because you said you went through a couple tutorials with like the quick check and stuff with Erlang. How do you classify the Erlang pattern matching? Is that mostly just regular pattern matching versus the active stuff you get in F-sharp? I was in Lambda days and I was talking to Alvaro Videla, the guy from RabbitMQ. And he was telling me, oh, you know, you don't know pattern matching until you do Erlang pattern matching. And I was like, okay. And he showed me some pattern matching and I was like, so what is this all you can do with this guy? Then he went and did a presentation and he was showing some more power matching. And I kind of thought, I don't see why I couldn't do that in F-sharp. The thing is like, I don't feel like I know Erlang enough to go and say, definitely F-sharp trumps Erlang's power matching, because I don't really know that. But for the little I've seen and this anecdotal experience, I think you can do the same that you can do in Erlang and perhaps you can do it in a slightly clearer way because it looks like in Ireland you have to kind of put everything slightly together. Again, it could have been Alvaro's example, and Alvaro, if you're listening to this story. So I don't know. I think we can do whatever Ireland can do, but I'd love to try, basically. I'd love to, maybe you can throw me some amazing power matching in Ireland, and I can try to convert it to F-sharp and see what happens. Yeah, it was more about trying to get a better grasp at that active pattern matching, because I think the Erlang stuff is just regular pattern matching, but that's not knowing the term of active pattern matching. The only thing that is different about the active pattern is that instead of having to put the expression in the match, you can give it a name and put that, you know, the way it can get messy. So say you're matching something and then something when when something or maybe something and something and something else. Say you have a tuple or a record of some sort. So instead of having that expression within your pattern matching, you can just give it a name and take it out of the power matching so it's easier to read 
and you're actually running that expression. So you're reducing or executing that expression. I don't know what you would call it in Erlang. So I see it as a facilitator for, sorry, I think it's just easier to read and think and reason about your matching. I think I kind of get a concept of what you're saying now. It'd almost be, I guess, thinking my Erlang experience, it would be something like taking that out and defining a preprocessor directive macro that says this guard clause text represents this. So whenever you see this, fill in that guard clause text. Yeah, kind of nearly. And you can kind of pass parameters to that active pattern. It's one of those things in programming that are super easy to show and kind of point at where the things are and how they work together. And when you try to explain it verbally, it's more convoluted than it needs to be. It's a simple thing. It just makes your pattern matching easier because you can give names to expressions. But it just sounds, because it has a name, maybe sounds bigger than it should be. Also, it's hard to find that when you start looking at them, you don't know when you should use them. But when you're writing code, you realize, oh, this is a great place to use active patterns. And it just comes to you, and it's brilliant. And I do realize that trying to describe some coding syntax over just verbal communication is tricky. So yeah, that's why I was trying to get some clarifications, but... Maybe I can find a little documentation about an active pattern matching, or unless you have an example that I can include in the show notes, we can put that in the show notes for anybody else who's curious about active pattern matching. Absolutely. There is a great post I'll send you. And I'll make sure to put that in the show notes for those who are curious about the difference between pattern matching and what active pattern matching adds on to it. Just kind of thinking back of when I started with F-Sharp in particular, what I loved was the functional composition operators. So you just have like this bar and the bigger than or less than to put functions together. Or you can basically just pipe the same way you would pipe commands in Linux. You can pipe functions together. And I just thought that was like, this is so hard in C Sharp or so much harder and harder to think about and to read about. And suddenly in F Sharp, it just works. You don't have to do any crazy stuff. That really was amazing. So for anybody who's unsure of that, can you kind of give an example of the differences? I believe I know what you're talking about from seeing a little bit of closure with their macro system and Elixir's macro, which Jose Valim has said he took inspiration from F-Sharp. But do you want to describe that more for anybody who's unfamiliar with that feature of F-Sharp? Sure. So say you have a list and you have a list of 0 to 100. And then you want to multiply each item on that list by two. And then you want to, I don't know, say sum it all together. Instead of having to do something that is like the sum and then you add the multiplication or you do a map or anything like that, you can have the list at the first line. Then you go to the next line or next to that. And you use this bar and the bigger than for pipe operator. And you say list, if it's a list, list.map, and you put your x goes to x by 2 function, that will multiply each item of the list by 2, and then you do another four pipe operator, and you do list.sum, that will basically do all of it in just one beautiful line of code, one line of code that you can follow very clearly. So in there, all you're doing is passing whatever the result of the previous expression to the very end of whatever's left. So say on the first example, you had the 0 to 10 or 100 4 pipe list dot map. 
Then you have your function, which is you, you define a function there, fun, blah. And you just need to imagine that whatever was before, which is in this case the list, goes immediately after the function definition. So it's not hard to reason about. It's just whatever is before, it goes after. You're just reorganized. So sometimes I think about that as like Yoda speech, in that you speak like Yoda. At least I used to think about that before. Now I just do it, but it was a nice way to remind myself when things work. The examples I've seen from other languages, and it's different because you said that actually, just to clarify, the output of the previous result gets fed in as the last argument to the next function on the other side of the pipe forward operator? Yep. And so one of the things that I had seen described was instead of thinking it inside out, you start to see the flow of the way you would normally think about it, right? You kind of said Yoda, but Yoda would almost have been map of X times 2 of the list 0, 10, whereas now you say take the list of 0, 10 and apply the map of X times 2 to that list, right? Yeah. And I'll put the example that you sent in the show notes for some people who haven't seen it and are completely confused about what we're writing. <laughs> what we're talking about. Uh, it's funny. The thing like, that's the forward pipe operator, but you could do the complete opposite if you use the backwards pipe operator. So instead of using the bigger than, you use the less than, and then the bar. So we use something like that. And that's one way of, for, of functional composition. But then you can also use, in this case, you're passing the result but you can also use some other function composition like this, which is the two bigger than or two less than symbols together. And what you do there is basically just say, grab these two functions and the parameter for, say, we have add and multiply, and we use that operator. Then when I call add and multiply, which is a new function name that is just basically combining these together, the parameter to that will go to both of those, which is kind of cool. So you have these different ways to deal with functions, and they are all kind of very concise. I think you get used to, the same way you get used to the dollar sign and the dot sign in, in Haskell, you get used to these function composition operators. And I think this is kind of where you diverge a little bit between Haskell and F-sharp, because you use a lot these function composition operators on F-sharp, where you would probably use equally as much dollar and dot in Haskell. And these are very, very different things. So I think there's something there that talks about the purity of the language and how the language was designed and used. And the, both the languages, sorry, that is kind of interesting. In F-sharp, you can do non-pure things and you can use .NET libraries and stuff. And that means you have to deal with a level of dirtiness or uh, just knowing that you will have nodes and stuff like that. And because you're dealing with functions all the time, this is a good way to deal with them. Where in, in Haskell, you probably just have a lot more monads to deal with. So you have more dollar, more thoughts, and more other operators kind of related to lifting and so on. So just to clarify what I was hearing you say was the pipe forward operator is the pipelining or chaining style of operation, whereas the double greater than operator represents the function composition, which takes two functions and will return a new function for you, right? Yes, yes. And then you also mentioned nulls. Does F-sharp actually have nulls proper, or 
does that get a new representation because of having to interact with the outside ecosystem of .NET? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's the second bit. It's a, there is a null keyword, and if you write native F-sharp, you will have no possibility of declaring a null. You will get one if you are interacting with other libraries. I think there are some ways to make F-sharp actually throw null reference exceptions, but you have to try kind of hard. It's because you're on top of .NET more than the actual language. It is that, do you use something like an atom or symbol or something to represent an undefined null state as opposed to an actual null? So it's something that's there, but you would just pattern match on a symbol or... You can match a null, like you have the keyword null. So you can say, for example, this, and this happens a lot in the game, say you have this dot game object dot get components, some components. That component can be null, so you can do a match on null and say, okay, off you go, go to somewhere else, and then match on the actual thing that you're looking for. And when you're in pure F-sharp, you would deal with the unit type, which is kind of like, it works well within the whole of F-sharp. It's kind of like a non-value, but it's not really, it doesn't work like null at all. And don't know how to explain it any better. Like you can return unit from a function, when a function has no parameters, it takes unit and it returns unit if it's not returning anything. So it's kind of from my understanding of what the maybe monad is, but it's not quite. Because my understanding is that the maybe monad has that concept of, I guess, does the maybe monad essentially wrap the unit type? Is that the way it works? Um, well, see, this is not a maybe monad. <laughs> Sorry, my understanding of like a maybe monad is you either have like your person or you right? Yes. And so there's a way to represent that nothing thing. So is that just your unit at that point? That would be closer to, we have also option types and then you have the option there is some thing or none where unit is slightly different than that. It's actually kind of like you can I don't think it's a maybe Mona. I think it's a maybe would be closer to an option type in action because none is a type, it's a return from this option type that is just non and is non and it's a generic operation where unit is something you don't need to have a person for if we're in the context of your example. Okay. A function can return unit, however a type and you can alias unit as well actually if you want to. This is complicated stuff. I need to find a better way to explain this. Um <laughs> I think you answered my question indirectly, which was what I was thinking of when trying to equate unit to, which is not, was the none type that the option type uses. So you may have a null, but generally in F-sharp you deal with the none types, if you're going to do that, right? If you're writing pure F-sharp without interrupting with the rest of the .NET framework? You can do option types, so it's kind of like some or none, but also you can just declare your types so that they don't need to deal with any nodes at all. Like, and also, get obviously that you don't have no reference exceptions from. So that that's nice. Okay, I think I got the picture. You kind of mentioned functional cats, and I had seen that Twitter account. Okay. And you mentioned at the beginning it was a user group as well. Well, that is just a user group or a user group. What we do in the user group is we meet up every month. And we either have a workshop and someone kind of guides us through something, or we solve a little problem, like something that you would fix in like 30, 40 minutes, maybe an hour. And the idea is that different people turn up 
and they solve this problem in different uh, functional first languages. And then we actually go through every solution we can and see what is common, but also what is not common to all the solutions. And that is been going on for quite a while now, and it's a great way to keep learning about different languages all at the same time. Is there any sort of history of that user group of some of the problems that you've solved? Because that sounds like a great idea for user groups is to be able to say every now and then, it's like, here's this little problem, go off, do it, and then we're going to share the results at the end. Yeah, absolutely. We have a GitHub repo, so we're github.com functional cats. And the good thing is, like, we started off in Dublin, but now we have a sister or a brother, whatever, group going on in Belfast. And they basically, sometimes they hook on to Skype or something, and we stream both ways. Or sometimes they do their own thing, but most of the times they've been just following what we do, so we can share results not only with Dublin, but also with Belfast. So that's kind of cool. Yeah, that sounds very neat. The fact that you're also coordinated with the other user groups to be roughly the same time of the day and same day of the month as well. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, like in Belfast, in, in Dublin, when we started, we were like seven cats. And it was funny because, you know, cats and it's like people. And it's cats as well. But we grew up a lot. And the group is about between 40 and 60 people every month, the last three meetups which is really impressive for a city like Dublin. And now Belfast started and they are like four or five people only. And, and I'm like, hey, wait, maybe it will be huge. Like we're here in Dublin. Yeah, that sounds like some inspiration to go through, especially if nothing else, to have a chance to do it on your own afterwards, just to follow along and say, okay, a good source of problems to go tackle if you're trying to do a language. Totally. They are available on GitHub. All the ones we've done historically, like before, and whenever we have new ideas, we put them there too. So feel free to go there. Also feel free to do the same problem in different languages. One of the months, the challenge was do this really simple problem, but do it in a language you have no idea about. That one was actually harder than we expected, but it was really fun. How many languages have you seen people come through with? Is it usually just the same two or three languages, or do you get a lot of dramatic variety in the languages that are chosen? <laughs> It's generally kind of the mainstream functional languages. So we have a good few FR people, a few Haskell people turning up, uh, some Clojure people, some Scala. But then one day, you know, typical <laughs> story. Then one day we had this guy turning up and fixing a problem on APL. And we were all blown away by this, this language. And also we saw how, like, he basically went over how he solved the problem on APL. And it was literally one line of code for what most of us took way longer than that, maybe 10, 12 lines. But he had all these weird symbols. It was really interesting to hear the thought process he went through to get to the solution. So, you know, the outlier was definitely API. I'd love to see someone come up with iDRIS or dependent types or whatever. I think the problems are small enough that they would be easily solved in French languages too, I guess. But it sounds like you're getting at least a decent showing of different languages versus the same handful of people all solving the problem differently in a Sharp and Haskell kind of thing. You're getting some variety across languages as well, which sounds great. Yeah, I'm super, super happy about that. There's a big Scala user group in Dublin, and I'm kind of surprised not more of them turn up. Maybe they don't know about it, I don't know. And I know there's a very small user base of Erlang users, so sometimes we get the one or two people using Erlang. 
I'd love to have more of that because I think that there's a lot to bring to the table from Ireland. So I don't know. I hope maybe they are listening out there and so come over to Functional Cats. Also, if anybody wants to start the Functional Cat in a different city, just let me know and I can help you with any questions you might have. It's a nice setup and it really helps if you're in a small city and you can't do just your language user group or whatever language you're particularly interested. So might as well go all functional. Yeah, seems like a good way to just evangelize other functional concepts too across the languages. Totally. Absolutely. So is there anything we haven't talked about that you think we've missed? Well, F-Sharp is a big language, and I think the features of the language we've discussed are the ones that are easier to reach. And there's way more to the language if people are interested. Code quotations, computational expressions. Computational expressions are you know, just a huge subject on its own. Then type providers. There's quite a lot about the language that it would take just too long to go through everything it can do. But it's worth investing the time or maybe having us some other podcast some more time and go through like the slightly more advanced features of the language because it's a huge language. Ten years in development or more. As for me, I think from the language point of view, yes, lots to say. From me, I think I've said everything I wanted to say or that I thought it would be useful to say. So do you have any upcoming appearances where you're doing more presentations besides your functional cats or Yes, actually, I'm going to be speaking at the F-Sharp Exchange in London, and that's on the 17th of April. Then I'll be going to Joy of Coding in Rotterdam, where I'm going to be doing a workshop on basically writing a game in F-Sharp. And then after that, I'm going to be in NDC Oslo. I think I'm forgetting something, but those are the three ones that come to mind right now. So yeah, I look forward to those. And I've heard good things about the functional track that's creeping up in the NDC Oslo one. The London one was amazing. I wanted to go to some hard talks, but the talks on the track were really, really good, so it was hard to peel away and go and check out some more stuff. I have to get better at that. And Brian Hunter is the one I know from the committee, looking after making sure that there is a good track there, and I think he's done a wonderful job. I think there are some more people in that committee, but of him I definitely know. So are there any other projects you're involved with that you want to let people know about or recommendations in general that you want to put on people's radar? Yes, sure. The one that is the easiest one, if you're doing presentations of any kind, just ditch PowerPoint, throw it away, never open it again, and use FSReveal. FSReveal uses Reveal.js, but you write your slides either, well, you can do it in F-sharp or you can do it in Markdown. And it's just really nice because you're typing code or at least markdown rather than slides. It's really fun. And you get, when you're putting code in your slides, you get some type information if you're doing a sharp or there's some R languages supported and you can have some kind of snippets when you go over your code and it's colored, you know, syntax highlighting. So that's a nice low friction project to go check out. Then, well, FSCheck, go check it out because it's awesome. Fake. If you like really strange things, there's a library called Ferop by Will. Basically, he's doing some sort of crazy bindings with F-Sharp and C or C++. And basically, you can write the sharp and run it through C, and it's kind of crazy. So if you like that kind of stuff, that might be interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's everything that comes to mind just right now. Those sound like some interesting recommendations to check out and 
the reveal stuff, I've been hearing more about it. So that sounds like an interesting project I'm going to have to look at. And then having the F-sharp version of it as well seems like it could be an interesting thing to check out to see how they interact with that. Totally. And one more, actually. If you're doing cloud at all, it's totally worth checking a first called Embrace. So the letter M, Embrace. And this is all... I basically just read the code, so I don't really know enough about how good it works when you're in the cloud and whatever, but the code is very beautiful, so that got me to look at it. But it's doing some very interesting stuff on the space of Azure and how you run your code distributedly. So if you're into that space, I'd say check out that project because they are doing amazing things. I'll make sure to include all those in the show notes. Cool. So where can people find you online if they want to follow you and follow what's going on? Well, I'm a Twitter person, so I'm available at Silverspoon. And then I have my blog in roundcrisis.com. And then if you're into games, you can always go check out my game, which is called Onikira, Demon Killer, which is actually Onikira means Demon Killer. And a lot of people think they know that, but we do not. Then I'll make sure to include all of those in the show notes as well. Thank you so much, Proctor. I would like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, thank you very much, Andrea, for giving your time to join me today. Uh, thank you so much. I, I really hope people enjoy it. It was a pleasure talking with you. Pleasure here. And I look forward to uh, meeting you in the future at some point, at some conference, hopefully. Totally. Say hi, and Say hi whenever I see you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.